0: Today is Palm Sunday, we're excited to celebrate, Uh, as as Kyle said, we're taking a, a break from our Hebrew series just for a few weeks to really focus in on uh, what's known as, uh, in some traditions, it's known as Holy Week. In other traditions, it's known as as Passion Week. But really what it is, it's, it's, it's the, the last week of Jesus' life in his earthly ministry prior to his crucifixion and then resurrection. We all know that Jesus is not dead. He lives forevermore. Amen? But he, he, his, his earthly life and his earthly ministry prior to his death and resurrection is a very important week. And the, the event that kicks it off is now known as Palm Sunday. And this is a really important story. This is a really important event in the life of Jesus. In fact, it's so important that it is found in all four Gospels. You know, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different men's uh, perspective uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They they wrote down different aspects of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Well, this is one of those stories that made it into all four Gospels. And because it's uh, in all four Gospels for many, it's, it's a familiar story. If you've been a part of the church, maybe if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is a familiar story to you. And so I just invite you today as we dive into this passage to really ask the Holy Spirit to give you fresh eyes, to see Jesus in a new light, to see a new perspective on this event, and that it wouldn't just be information for you, but it would be something that would lead to heart transformation. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read this passage, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, and then I'll pray and we'll spend some time together unpacking these verses. Read with me if you would. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus and Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The father will honor him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that this week represents. We thank you for this incredible picture, this incredible story of Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem, riding in as a a conquering king, but riding in on on a donkey as a humble king. Jesus, for many of us, this this Palm Sunday celebration is a familiar one. For many of us, it's something we've participated in for years. God, I'm praying, especially for those who have been Christians for any length of time. God, would you give us fresh eyes to see Jesus? And would you give us a fresh passion to love him and to serve him and to follow him as citizens of this kingdom? God, for any of my friends who are here today who are not yet Christians who have not uh, made that decision to follow Jesus and be a part of his kingdom. God, I pray you would just work in their hearts right now. God, give them the faith to see Jesus, to love Jesus, and to follow Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You know, every story has a shape. Every story, a good story, will take you through some ups and some downs, will take you through some highs and some lows. It's not a very good story, is it, if it's just kind of a flat and static storyline. And if you look back into antiquity, the ancient Greeks, they really categorized most stories into two broad categories. They had the comedy which doesn't really have as much to do with humor. When we say the word comedy, we think, make me laugh. When they used the word comedy, what they meant was it started out high, things went poorly, went bad, it would go down, and then at the end of the story, things would go back up again. And then they would use the term tragedy, which is, you might guess, the exact opposite. Things would start out not very good, and then things would start to get better. Things would look like they're gonna take a turn for the better, and all this is gonna be well, but then at the end of the story, everything falls off and disintegrates again. I'm speaking very broadly. Obviously, there's much more that uh, could be said about that, But every story, generally speaking, falls into one of those two categories. Now, the Bible is, in fact, has has been spoken of and has been written of as being a type of comedy. You see, at the very beginning, things are wonderful. God creates the heavens and the earth. Everything is peaceful and beautiful, but not three chapters in, everything takes a dive for the worse. And then spends a long time down at the bottom But then we see at the very end, there's a a severe upswing in terms of of Jesus coming and offering life and offering redemption and hope and salvation. At the very, very end of the story, we see that the people that have trusted in Jesus get to spend eternity with him in in paradise, free from sin and sickness. The, The Bible is a comedy. The Bible is a story that ends on a beautiful note. Now you have to think, these disciples have been walking with Jesus now for approximately three years. And they're they're living out a story. They're in the middle of this story. And you have to imagine you're, you're, you're in this scene, you're in this crowded scene and the disciples are starting to ask themselves, what is the shape of this story? What is the shape of this story? If you're with Jesus and you're entering into the city and you see these crowds worshiping and praising, you have to start to believe that good things are in store, don't you? You have to start to believe, wow, this is like the beginning of the end. It's really going to happen. The crowds are going to follow Jesus. Uh, We're going to get rid of these awful Romans who have been subjugating us. We're going to get rid of the terrible Herod kings that have been put in place by the Romans. Jesus is really going to be the king. This is a a remarkable story. But what the disciples don't realize is that there's a death that's going to come. This whole week today serves to point us towards Friday. In fact, as we read through these verses again, you're gonna see there are some sour notes mixed in among the joy that people are experiencing. There's some minor key starting to show up. The saddest of all things is gonna happen in just a few days' time. The death of the Son of God, the death of Jesus Christ. We're gonna celebrate that on Friday. We call it Good Friday. You're all invited to join us. And then what's even more amazing, they couldn't have comprehended that just in a few short days, Jesus was going to die. They really couldn't have comprehended that just a few days after that, Jesus would rise again and be alive forevermore. But I want you to imagine yourself in this story. I want you to imagine yourself thinking about this scene. And what I want you to understand Really, the the big idea of this whole passage, the big idea of, of the sermon today is this. Jesus is the king of all peoples and he demands allegiance from all people. That's really the big idea. I want you to hold that as the thread that ties this entire narrative together. Jesus is the king. He rules and reigns over a kingdom and as such, he calls for complete and total submission to his kingdom. There's no halfway in and halfway out. And as we look at this passage today, we're gonna see four things about this kingdom. We're gonna, we're gonna see that this kingdom was promised. So we're gonna see a promise of the kingdom. We're gonna see just how surprising this kingdom is. So the surprise of the kingdom, we're gonna see how different this kingdom is from all of the other kingdoms of the world. And we're gonna see how challenging this kingdom is. So we're going to see the promise, the surprise, the difference, and the challenge. We see four things about this kingdom. Let's start in, in verse 12, looking at the promise of the kingdom. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast. Now, the feast. I'm going to pause right there. Throughout these verses, there are some clues that are kind of hidden some clues to uh, historical references, things that have happened in the history of God's people, the history of Israel. And when you see the feast, no other descriptors given, do you know what that feast is? It's the feast of Passover. It's the big one. This is the, this is the, the peak of the calendar year, the celebration of the Passover, the celebration of when God freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, set them free. And really was the birth of the nation. So I want you to pay attention. That's our first clue. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming out to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees. That's another clue. I'm not gonna tell you what that one is yet. There's another clue. It's another tradition, another ceremony happening. They went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That verse right there, that quotation, that's the third clue. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That donkey, that's clue number four. You guys feel like we're playing a game of blues clues or something right now, right? There's, there's these, I have young children, forgive me. The, these clues hidden throughout this narrative, there's something really important happening. There's something really important happening because Jesus is making a claim to kingship here, but it's not divorced from historical context. Let me just give you an analogy. I want you to imagine for a minute that that you're a young child and you wake up one morning and you walk downstairs into the living room and there's a tree in your living room and there's decorations hanging from the tree and presents all underneath the tree. And then you look over on the mantle and there is a pumpkin with a face carved into it and a bowl of candy. And then you look a little bit over off to the right and there's a bunch of dyed eggs and more candy. What would you imagine was happening? Like the best holiday ever known to man, right? Some combination of Christmas and Halloween and Easter and multiple candy bowls, this is amazing. What is happening in this scene is a mixing of metaphors. It's a bunch of different aspects of the story of Israel all colliding and combining into one. Let me just walk you briefly through the history of of Israel particularly as it has to do with kings. And let me just say this by way of of kind of an introduction to this section. Recounting this history is important for us. Recounting this history is important for us. When we come to the person of Jesus, it could be very easy for us as 21st century American Christians to not understand that Jesus was really living out a story. He was living out the culmination of a very long story that took place through the people of Israel. We don't want to just kind of parachute into the person of Jesus. We want to understand him in his context. We want to understand the claims he was making. We want to understand that our God is the kind of God who has always had a plan to save and rescue and redeem his people. And just how magnificent of a plan it is, just how magnificent of a story that God is writing up to and through and after the the life of Jesus. Let me just walk you through this history briefly. The the first period of of Israel's history with kings really is Moses. Starts out with Moses and really under Moses, the the idea is God is king. In fact, it explicitly says so in, in the book of Deuteronomy and other places that the people of Israel are to function as a theocracy meaning God is the king. Moses is the lawgiver. Moses is a prophet. Moses is a judge, but Moses is not the king. God is king. When they would go into battle against foreign armies, uh, usually uh, any nation would be led out by their king. No, God would lead them. God was the king that would lead the people. And this is true under Joshua as well. But the problem is, is after Joshua died, Israel entered into really the next period of history under the judges in which there really was no king. There really was no leadership. The people forgot that to, to, to submit to and to follow God as king and they would get themselves into all sorts of trouble. It always started with them worshiping false gods. They would worship idols, and then they would get themselves subjugated to these other kings, and then God would raise up a judge. He'd raise up a deliverer, and they'd be set free, and they'd say, oh, thank you, God, and then they'd go right back to worshiping their idols. It's a very sad downward spiral under uh, the judges where there really is no king. It actually says in judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. At the end of the period of Judges, the people of Israel are sick of it. They say, we have to have a king. We need to have a king. And so they basically strong arm the prophet Samuel into giving them a king. And we end up with King Saul. He's the people's king. He's the people's king. He's the one that they have demanded. There's a, I'll probably butcher it, but there's kind of a truism that says, you know, people get the king that they deserve. People get the leader that they deserve. Well. The people were not following God as king. The people wanted to, they specifically said, we want to be like other nations. We need a king. And so they get King Saul. He had an okay start, but his story is definitely one of a tragedy. Saul does not finish well. Saul is removed from the kingship over Israel. And in his place, God puts a man named David. David is a man after God's own heart. David is God's chosen king. Even while Saul is still ruling and reigning, God has David anointed. And David becomes more than just a king. David becomes the king. David, in fact, is given a promise by God that he will always have one of his descendants ruling over the people of Israel. This is what 1 Kings 2 says. Speaking, you know, says to pay attention to God's law so that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, here it is, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. God actually promises to David that one of his descendants would always rule over Israel. Now in Psalm 118, this is a Psalm that David writes. This is what he actually says. says this, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now this is really interesting. This was our second, well, actually, let me get my numbers right. This was our third clue that we looked at. That that phrase, save us, we pray, oh Lord, in the Hebrew sounds like Hosanna. Remember a minute ago when we saw the people shouting Hosanna, what they're saying is save us, oh Lord, save us. It's a cry of, of asking for help, but it's also a cry of praise. Praise the God who saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, King David is writing this a long time, centuries and centuries before the time of Jesus. But he's giving us a picture. He's pointing us forward to the type of king, the ultimate king who's going to come. This is what's known as a messianic psalm. It's pointing forward. It's one of these clues. And so when the people at Jesus' parade start crying out, save us, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. you know what they're saying? They're saying this man, Jesus right here, he is the one who is the promised king, who's going to save us. He's the one. This would have been an absolutely unmistakable reference. Just like for you and me to walk downstairs uh, one morning to see a tree with decorations hung on it. We know what that means. When the people start singing out this psalm, the people know what that means. Jesus is the king. Continuing in the story of Israel, the next king after David is Solomon. And Solomon is the wise king. This is David's son. Solomon actually starts out very well. He's he's a, a very honored and revered king. He actually is able to build a temple, to build a house of worship for God. But again, another tragic story where Solomon lets his heart uh, be pulled astray by, by foreign wives. He, he ended up with hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines and he began to worship false gods and uh, things in the nation went really poorly as a result. We enter into this next period of this divided kingdom where there's competing kings, the northern tribes versus the southern tribes, Israel versus Judah, 10 versus two, and each one has rival kings and rival claims to authority and leadership. And it is a very sad and a tragic period in the history of Israel. The kings in in the northern tribes were particularly bad. The southern tribe kings, they did okay. They did a little bit better. But ultimately, both kingdoms ended up in exile. And so now the people are sitting under the rulership of pagan kings. To imagine you've, you've lived in this land your whole life, you have to imagine it was the land that God promised to give to your forefathers. We live in this land where we're here and now because of our sin, because of our rebellion, now we're living under the rule of pagan kings. In fact, in the Bible, you read about a lot of pagan kings like Darius and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and, and, and Cyrus and... Uh, Xerxes, all sorts of foreign kings ruling over God's people, not the way that God would rule over them, not the way that King David would rule over them. During this period of exile, a lot of prophets began to speak words from God. This is one of our other clues here. There's a prophet named Zechariah. In Zechariah 9.9, we see this. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king Is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You have to remember this was written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. It's a promise, it's a hope, it's an expectation. Hey, People of Israel, I know you're in exile. I know you are sitting under the rulership of some really bad foreign pagan kings, but rejoice greatly because there's a king coming and he's gonna be righteous and he's gonna have salvation and you're gonna know it because he's gonna ride on a donkey of all things. When Jesus goes and has a donkey brought to him that he may ride on it, what is Jesus doing? He is, I believe, intentionally referencing this prophecy. Jesus himself is saying, I'm this king. I am the king of righteousness and the king of salvation. You should rejoice. Do you think the people of Israel would have gotten that? Do you think they would have picked up on this reference? See all these different clues coming together? This this history, this story, it's all coming together. There's one more. This one is uh, very interesting. One more clue. This is the period of Israel after the exile, God allowed them to eventually return. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the return of the people from exile. And then the storyline of the Old Testament stops. We have a period of about 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament when Jesus bursts onto the scene. However, there are some other books that were written during that time that give us some interesting information and give us some interesting history about uh, particularly a group of people known as the Maccabeans. Have you guys ever heard of the Apocrypha? Is that a familiar term for you guys? Uh, any of you who maybe have background in the Catholic Church, you know that they have some extra books in their Bible. Uh, we, would, we would say that those books uh, are very interesting. They're, they're uh, good history. They give us some things to kind of fill in the gaps, but they're not on the same level of inspired and authoritative, perfect word of God. Amen? But there's a, there's a reference that happens. So, so those of you who maybe know the story, uh, the Syrians had now come in and conquered over Jerusalem. And this family, this particular leader named Judah Maccabees was raised up, Judah the Hammer. Talk about a cool nickname. You can call me Aaron the Hammer. Uh, Judah the hammer raised up and against all odds and quite miraculously, they drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. They reclaimed the temple. It was a stunning military victory and the people were, were just absolutely rejoicing. This is where we get the celebration of Hanukkah that still happens to this day. And I'm gonna read you a reference from uh, the book of Maccabees, the book of Second Maccabees, because there's one more clue hidden in here. It says this, it happened on the same day which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners. The purification of the sanctuary took place, that is, on the 25th day of the same month, which is Hislev. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing. There's Hanukkah. In the manner of the Festival of Booths, remembering how not long before during the Festival of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. And they decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. What that's saying to us is this. There's another holiday, there's another annual celebration where the people would wave palm branches to celebrate the victorious Maccabean kings who kicked out those awful, bad Syrians and now we're celebrating. Again, this is quite the mixed metaphor. This is quite the mixed metaphor. We're we're in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and now all of a sudden we're waving palm branches. It's not that time of year yet, but the people recognize that Jesus is the ultimate king who fulfills all of these strands of Israel's history. Listen, I know I've covered a ton of history and I've covered a bunch of different angles. If you could walk away from this with just this one point is that it's unmistakable that the people were saying Jesus is the king and that Jesus himself is saying, I'm the king. I'm the king. I will rule over my people, I will rule over and reign over the people as a king does. And what I want you to see is how it isn't just some random claim to kingship. If I was to tomorrow say, I am now running for president of the United States. All of the candidates are a severe disappointment, I'm gonna run for president. You would say, that's random, right? But if my last name was Kennedy or Clinton or Bush, you would say, oh, yeah, that kind of makes a little bit more sense. I understand it now. There's some history there. There's history here at this moment that we find Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And I want to say this as well. You have to understand, this would have made the political leaders very nervous. Sometimes we can spiritualize Christianity. In fact, that's one of the great tactics that the devil loves to use in our culture is that the Christian faith is just this private spiritual thing. You go do your religious practices. You go have your faith. As long as it doesn't affect or influence anything or anybody else, you can go believe and do what you want. But you need to understand that Jesus' kingdom is not just about your own private personal religious experience. It is about Jesus claiming that he has authority over the whole world. Amen? You have to know that the political leaders of the day were getting quite nervous. In fact, so nervous that in just five days time, they're going to have him executed as an enemy of the state. Please do not believe the lie that Jesus' kingdom is only about your personal, individual religious experience. That is a lie. God wants everything in your life and in the whole world. Amen? So that's the promise of the kingdom. His kingdom is coming. This kingdom has been promised. Now there's something in verse 16 that just really struck me this week. This is the surprise of the kingdom. Now, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I just love the honesty of the Bible sometimes. Jesus' own followers who traveled with him for three years, who Jesus had told them repeated times, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is what it's going to mean. They didn't get it. I love that. The Bible is honest. If if you feel like there are things in the Bible that you sometimes don't understand, you are in good company. Because the very people who walked and talked with Jesus face-to-face didn't get it at times. They didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. I find this so fascinating because we just looked at all of these different markers, all of these different indicators, all these different signposts that God had given for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years saying, it's all leading up to this. It's all leading up to this. There's a King coming. There's a Messiah coming. There's a promised one coming. It's all leading up to this. And then Jesus shows up and the people just didn't even get it. It says it wasn't until after he was glorified that then they put the pieces together. That Oh, I get it now. It's all coming true in Jesus. In fact, maybe we should cut the disciples a little bit of slack. Because even though all the markers, all the indicators were pointing towards Jesus, his plan was still radical and surprising, wasn't it? His plan is still radical and surprising. The way that in the ancient world, and actually still in our world to this day, the way that kings come into power is by going in and killing your enemies. That's all that there is to it. You want to be a king? You want to be in power? For the vast majority of human history, uh, they don't have things like a democratic election process. A king would simply go in and say, I'm in charge now, and through violent military force, expel whoever was in power, and then stand up and say, I'm the king, now you have to do what I say. But Jesus' plan, his glorification is so surprising. It's so out of the ordinary. It's so backwards because instead of going in and killing all of his enemies, Jesus goes and he dies for his enemies. If you flip a few verses down in the story in in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus is talking and he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up, there's that, Language of being glorified. I will draw all people to myself. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, if you were one of the disciples, when Jesus starts saying, I'm gonna be lifted up and I will draw all men, they're like, that's right. You're the king. You're going to be lifted up. You're going to go up on a platform. You're going to go up on a pedestal. We'll gather the crowds around. We'll place a a crown on your head and we'll all call out praises and you will be lifted up. You will be glorified. But John explicitly tells us that he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John 19, verses 16 through 19. Again, just a little later in John. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, Church, what's the word? King of the Jews. See, crucifixion was designed by the Roman government to be the most painful, but, but also the most fear-inducing type of death that anyone could die. It was a public declaration to all of the people that says, if you do what this person did, a similar fate awaits you. And in mockery, Pilate, the Roman governor, put an inscription over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. See, Pilate got it. Jesus is claiming to be king. Pilate got it. These people are worshiping and celebrating Jesus as king. So when you crucify him, you put a sign over his head that says, if you claim to be the king of the Jews, this is what's going to happen to you. But what Pilate didn't realize is that God has a beautiful sense of irony. And in a great and stunning reversal, the cross becomes Jesus' enthronement ceremony. He has a crown on his head, it's a crown of thorns, a crown that caused blood to pour out of Jesus' head royal blood. And Jesus is lifted up in front of all people. He's lifted up in front of them. And he says, When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. People could see him. And there's a sign, it even says over his head, King of the Jews. At some point, you know, we don't we don't have royalty in America. We have a president that's sworn in every four years, and there's some level of pomp and ceremony. At some point in the future, in England, there'll be a change of rulership. And Queen Elizabeth will at some point pass away, and someone will be put in as king. You guys, the celebration over there, oh my goodness. What a celebration. I've watched some of the footage of when Queen Elizabeth was actually put in and they got parades and you got people in fancy robes and you have all sorts of ceremony and there's a crown that's put in. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, quite an ordeal. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is our king's enthronement ceremony. What a surprise. No wonder the disciples didn't get it. They didn't expect that their great king was going to be put in place this way. But Jesus told him, Jesus said, this is the kind of king I'm going to be. And the truth of the gospel is that anyone who places their faith in this king will be made a part of his kingdom. The Bible uses the language about being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of death and brought into the kingdom of the sun. Did you know that you're part of a kingdom today? If you are a Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if you are not a Christian today, I I love you. And it is my duty and my, my, my joy to even tell you that you are not a part of the kingdom of God. You are a part of the kingdom of darkness. And there's a wide open invitation to escape from that kingdom and to come be a part of the kingdom of God. How? By looking at this king who is lifted up, the one who says, When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And Jesus is a different king, so we would expect that his kingdom would be a different kind of kingdom. Look through uh, verses 17 through 23. The first thing I want you to see, actually, is that this kingdom is a humble kingdom. It's a humble kingdom. That, that reference we looked at in Zechariah 9.9, it says, behold, your king is coming to you, uh, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, in the ancient world, you, you ride into town, you're gonna claim to be the king, you ride on a big horse, the, the bigger, the better, right? It's like celebrities today, like the bigger the limousine, the better, right? That's how you know that somebody's important. Do they have a, they have a limousine? Oh no, they have a limousine SUV, Oh, they have their own 747. They must be really important, right? In the ancient world, the bigger the horse, the bigger the entourage, the better. Here comes Jesus riding on a donkey of all things. Have you ever ridden on a donkey? Those are some of the most ridiculous creatures that God ever came up with. When I was a child, we took a vacation to Arizona and we, we saw, I got to ride on a donkey in, in the Grand Canyon there. They're just silly. They're just silly animals, This is what Tim Keller, uh, pastor and author, says. This type of parade was culturally appropriate in that era, but Jesus deliberately departed from the script and did something very different. He didn't ride in on a powerful war horse the way a king would. He was mounted on a polos, that is a colt or a small donkey. Here was Jesus Christ, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit. This demonstrates that Jesus was king, but that he didn't fit the world's category of kingship. We should should have known this to be true from Jesus. His own ministry bears this out. In Matthew chapter 10, he's he's talking to his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You know I'm in charge. You know I'm the boss. You know I'm the one that you need to come to if you want something done. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. and Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man, even Jesus himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, "I'm a different type of king, and my kingdom is going to be a different type of kingdom. It's not going to be based on principles of authority and lording it over you and making sure that you know that I'm the type of boss that that the Gentiles have." He goes, "If you want to know who's the greatest leader, look for the one who serves others the most." Is that true in your life, Christians, members of this kingdom? Is this one of those values that is evident in your life? Is there humility there? Next thing we see, it's a gracious kingdom. It's a gracious kingdom. In, in this verse, we can actually see in verses like 17 through 19, I'll just, I'll reference them here, not put them up on the screen, but this crowd had come because they had heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That would get some attention. Amen? Someone came back from the dead. So this giant crowd gathers. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard he'd done this sign. Now the Pharisees, this is verse 19, the Pharisees, they said to one another, "You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after them, after him. The Pharisees are kind of um, I just envision them standing on the sides and they 've really got their arms folded. They really got their, ugh, look at these people. Look at this celebration. Look at what Jesus is doing. Look at all Look at all these ignorant masses following after Jesus. Look at these crowds just going after him. They're just kind of sneering what the Bible would call a scoffer. <laughs> that's, that's the technical definition of scoffing in the Bible, right? You, can, you have to do it. You can't explain it. <laughs> look at this king. Look at it, you know, we do all these things right. We follow the law. We uphold the 10 commandments and look at these people just following after Jesus thinking they're gonna get some forgiveness and grace. Maybe they're gonna, you know, he'll raise their dead people back to life. And the Pharisees are just absolutely indignant over this celebration that's happening. But here we see that Jesus is indeed modeling another contrast He's modeling another contrast. He said, no, no, my kingdom is not gonna be one that's based on how well you do and how good you do and how much you measure up. He goes, my kingdom is gonna be one that's based on grace. See, the Pharisees are standing there just deriding the people, and yet Jesus is there loving the people. Again, you can see this in in places like Matthew chapter 20. There's a parable that Jesus tells where he says, you know, he tells this story, he goes, you know, a guy goes out and he's going to hire some workers. He hires them first thing in the morning. He says, I'll pay you, uh, you know, $100. And then throughout the day, he goes out and he keeps hiring more workers. He goes out at lunchtime. He goes out in the mid-afternoon. He actually goes and hires some right at five o'clock. He says, I'll pay you $100. Come work for me. And at the end of the day, the, the business owner goes to settle up and he gives everybody $100. And the people who got hired on in the morning said, hey, that's not fair. We worked all day. Those people only worked for a little bit of the day. How come you're giving us all $100? And Jesus says, that's the way the kingdom of God works. Even the least in the kingdom still get eternal life. Even the least in the kingdom still receive a share of the inheritance of the riches of heaven given to you by Christ. Did you know that there is hope for those of you who today feel like really bad Christians you feel like a bad christian. Oh, I just I can't get it together. I can't measure up. Listen. If it was up to us, none of us would be a part of God's kingdom. Just because there's somebody who maybe measures up a little closer to the bar that they also failed to reach doesn't mean that they reached the bar. You could be two two clicks closer to still failing. It doesn't matter. Our, our, our righteousness, our status, our, 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 our citizenship in this kingdom is based solely on God's grace. It's not based on our works. No, we are called into this kingdom than to live out the works of the kingdom? Absolutely. I'm not saying that you should have a, a, a lackadaisical attitude about sin. I'm not saying you should say, well, I'm just a bad Christian. That's just how I am. No, God's going to grow you and shape you and change you. But if you think that your citizenship in this kingdom is based on your works, you're sorely mistaken. It is based only on God's grace and his grace alone. That's good news for all of us. It takes the pressure off. I'm not a part of this kingdom because I'm some super good Christian. If you're not a Christian, listen, again, another one of those lies that gets circulated is, oh, to be a Christian means you have to be a good person. You have to do the right things all the time. No, being a Christian means that you've admitted that you're really terrible at doing all the good things all the time and you really need a rescuer and a redeemer. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's different from any other religion in the whole wide world. Every other religion says, you got to get good enough. Your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds, whatever. Jesus says, I know you're a hopeless train wreck. Let me save you, redeem you, bring you into my kingdom, and let me teach you how to live now. Isn't that good news? His kingdom is different. It's a humble kingdom. It's a gracious kingdom. And it is a kingdom for all people. Oh, I love this part. Let me actually read this uh, a little bit more in depth because what's happening here in in, in um this story is it's a very nationalistic scene. This is a very Jewish scene, right? We've got the Passover, we've got the Maccabees, we've got prophecies from Zechariah, we've got Psalms from King David. It's all very Jewish, Jewish Jewishy. I don't think that's the right word, but this very Hebrew scene. And then in verse 20, it says this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. There was a special... Uh, literally a second-class area where those who were non-Jews were allowed to go and worship. And these people, these Greeks, were there to worship. They were converts to Judaism. And they were there to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, that's one of Jesus' disciples, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told, not Jesus, he went and told Andrew. I think that's uh, probably indicative of maybe a little fear on Philip's part. Like, hey, uh, Andrew, we're doing all this really Jewish stuff here and these Greeks want to talk to Jesus. Do you think that's a good idea? Like, should we do that? And apparently Andrew said yes. So Andrew and Philip went together. We need the buddy system here. Went and told Jesus and Jesus answered them. Now pause, pause. What's amazing is that Jesus, in the middle of this very nationalistic scene, this very Jewish scene says, yes, let's let's go talk to these Greeks. Let's go have a conversation with them. Let's go bring them in to the celebration. Do you know why? Because God's kingdom is a kingdom for all people. God's kingdom is a kingdom for people from every nation and tongue and tribe on the face of the earth. God's kingdom comes through the people of Israel. God gave these promises to Abraham. God did all of this work in the people of Israel, but his ultimate plan, his ultimate goal has always been to redeem people, a kaleidoscope of people, a beautiful tapestry of every skin color, every ethnicity, every language from the whole world to be a part of his kingdom. This is good news. This is what we see in Revelation chapter seven. This is the John, the same author is having a vision. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, by the way, Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Listen, God's plan from the beginning of time has been to redeem a people for himself from every ethnic background. And what I really want you to understand is that for the vast majority of us here together in this room today, we are the Greeks that went and talked to Philip that asked to meet with Jesus. Some of you may have Jewish uh, heritage, Jewish ethnic background, but for the majority of us, we don't. And it could be very, here's what could be very dangerous for us as 21st century Americans to think that we're the Jews in the story and we're the center of the story and anybody else would be privileged. No, listen, white people. You're lucky, you're privileged, you're blessed to be a part of the kingdom of God. And there is absolutely no place whatsoever in God's kingdom for racial discrimination or looking down on somebody else because they have a different skin color or speak a different language from you, amen? That has no place in the people of God has no place. I'm particularly uh, intrigued to watch the way that this presidential election cycle has brought out all of the racial tensions that still exist in America. You guys, we are a very broken people. And we are in need of some courageous men and women, citizens of the kingdom of God, to lead the charge of saying there can be no dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Heck, we're over here building walls of hostility between Gentile and Gentile. God help us. God help us. His kingdom is a kingdom for all people. I I think that in the Pacific Northwest in particular, Uh, You know, if you've spent any time in the South, you know that racial tension is much more um, in your face. You can't avoid it. You can't escape it. It's right there. For us in the Pacific Northwest, we can kind of avoid it. It's kind of underneath the surface. It's not overt. But I'm telling you, there are some very deep prejudices and some very deep non-kingdom mentalities that exist among people in the Pacific Northwest. Would you agree with me? And so when we see this kingdom, it's a different kind of kingdom. It's for all people. It's for people that bug you. Because you know what? In the kingdom of God, you're the person that bugs somebody else. (laughs) The humility and the the grace leads to us understanding we can't have these walls of division. God is inviting people from every single walk of life, every single ethnic, racial, language, background to come and be a part of his kingdom. What a a good God we serve, amen? Amen. This is a very different type of kingdom, a very different kind of kingdom. And then it ends with a challenge. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. He says, it's here. I'm gonna be glorified. The time is here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's Jesus speaking of there? He's speaking of his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus is actually using the metaphor of a seed being planted, of his own body being planted in the ground like a seed, but then on the third day, bursting forth and beginning to bear much fruit. You know, it's getting dangerously close to feeling like springtime. And we start to see Leaves starting to come. We start to see plants starting to bud. We start to see, uh, I saw some cherry blossoms last week that seemed really early for me, but there they were. When we see those leaves starting to bud, it's a reminder of these words of Jesus. Unless a a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But in my death, more life is gonna be brought than you thought ever possible. And Jesus is alive. (laughs) We get to celebrate with great shouts of joy next Sunday, the, cel- the resurrection of the son of God. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he turns it around. He says, whoever lo- uh, loves his life loses it. You love your life. You cling to it, but you can't hold on to it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I don't believe that Jesus maybe literally means you hate your life in some sort of a despairing or suicidal way, but what he's meaning is that you love the life that God gives you so much that your own earthly life, you don't even love it so much. It looks like you hate it in comparison. You're just willing to give anything and everything away to keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Here's what Jesus is saying. There's no halfway point with this kingdom. You wanna sign up for this kingdom? You wanna be a part of this kingdom? Then you're gonna follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to be taught by Jesus. It means to be shaped by Jesus. It means that our lives in increasing measure look more and more like Jesus. Let me, let me say this to those of you who are not Christians. Christians. You cannot, according to Jesus, be an admirer of Jesus. You cannot be merely an admirer of Jesus. Well, I admire Jesus. I like the things he said. I like the things he taught. I think he did some great good in the world. He had some very interesting things to say. No, Jesus is saying right here that what he is asking from you is nothing less than your entire life to let go of your control over your life, to get off of the seat of being in charge of your own life and submitting yourself to following Jesus, following him, (coughs) learning him, serving him. And for those of you who are Christians, who have made that decision, would you agree that there are times where your heart, like mine, tends to drift back into putting someone or something else on that place of authority in my life? Oftentimes it's just me. I want to be in charge of my own life. Would you agree with that? That drift, that, that tendency, that struggle, it's, it's real. Jesus is unflinching in asking for all of you. If some of you are holding on to areas of your life where there is sinfulness saying, well, this is just one of those areas I'm not ready to give to Jesus yet, then you need to understand you are rebelling against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you're holding on to areas of unconfessed, unrepented of sin saying, well, it's probably not that big of a deal. You need to understand that you are out of step with our King. And rather than standing up here and saying, you know, you need to do better, you need to try harder. What I want you to understand is that Jesus gave all Jesus gave us everything. What did Jesus have that he didn't give us? Jesus gave us his very life. Jesus says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna place all that I have right here. I'm push all my chips in the middle of the table. I'm gonna give it all. I'm gonna hold nothing back. Jesus has no more love, no more grace than he could possibly give. Greater love has no one than he laid down his life for his friends. Do you see the enormity of the gift that Jesus has given to us? And if you are a Christian and you see just how massive the gift of grace is that you've received, how can you hold anything back from this great king? For those of you who aren't Christians, I'm inviting you today, give everything you've got to Jesus. Don't sample, don't sip, don't taste, don't dip your toe in the water, push all your chips to the middle of the table too and say, I'm going all in on Jesus Christ. I'd rather be a a a lowly servant in his kingdom than the king of my own kingdom? I wanna close with three questions. These are just ones for us all to reflect. on. number one, will you follow this king? Will you follow this king? Particularly for those of you who are not Christians. Jesus is the king. He claimed it. He says, I'm the king. Will you follow him? Number two, will you pledge allegiance to King Jesus above all? Not just will you follow him, but when you see your heart wanting to drift after other kings or putting yourself up on the place of rulership, will you pledge allegiance to him above all? And number three, will you live out the kingdom values of humility, grace, and reconciliation? Will you live out the kingdom values? Saying that you want to follow Jesus, but not living out the kingdom values means you're not following Jesus. And if he brings anything to your heart right now, then confess it, repent of it and receive his grace and receive his teaching and his instruction because he said that we could come to him. And the Bible says a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he'll never deny. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm humble and gentle in heart. And those are the questions I want you to think about. I actually wanna just pause for a brief moment here and invite you just to close your eyes if you would. I wanna pray. God, I'm just praying right now for anyone who's here God, for for any of those who are not Christians here today, God, I pray that you would do a stirring in their heart, that they would recognize how important it is to give their lives to Jesus and and follow Jesus. God, I know you're not interested in a a fancy prayer of any sort, but God, you're just interested in their hearts. God, for those of my friends who are here today who are Christians, who have made that step to follow you, but there's competition in the heart. God, I pray that you would reset and realign the priorities. Send your spirit now as we enter into this time of response. May we all respond to you as you want us to. pray this in Jesus' good name, amen. We're gonna respond now, church. Some of you, maybe even today, you're responding in faith for the first time. I would love for you to come find myself or one of the other leaders here. I would love to talk with you and pray with you. For the rest of us, we're going to respond first by giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come and begin to collect the offering if you would. Uh, while they're collecting the offering, I just want to remind you, this is again, this is not one of those works we do to earn God's love. It's something we do in response to the love he's given to us. And so I encourage you to give generously uh, as God would lead. Let's talk about a few questions to help us with conversation this week in our homes and in our community groups. First question, why does the whole story of Scripture, you know, particularly today we talked about the story of Israel's kings. Why does that matter to us today as 21st-century Christians? You guys can collect the offering. Yeah. Number two, why is Jesus such a surprising king, and what about his kingdom continues to surprise you? Number three: the cross is Jesus' enthronement ceremony. Discuss this idea. I get these out of order. Uh, what implications does this have for our lives, our families, our communities and our church? Number four, where in your life are you tempted to pledge allegiance to someone or something more than King Jesus? And then number five, how can we as individuals and as a group more passionately live out Jesus' kingdom values? Let's discuss those things this week in our community groups and in our homes. And then let's pray. We wanna be people of prayer. So number one, spend time in prayer, simply praising King Jesus for who he is and what he has done. I think this is a great week for us to like the people in the crowd. Just wave some palm branches. I mean, maybe literally, but figuratively, just praising him. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a humble king. Just offering up those types of prayers, just in praise. And then number two, pray for those who don't follow Jesus to come into his kingdom through us, living out Jesus' kingdom values. You know, the the kingdom values of humility and graciousness and reconciliation, those will stand out in our increasingly selfish world. Wouldn't you agree? So as we live out these kingdom values, I believe that God has people he wants to save uh, by using us to model those things for people. And so I just ask you to be praying for those who don't yet follow Jesus. We're gonna respond in communion, a celebration of the Lord's table. This is for Christians. Uh, If you're a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor with us, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you're not a Christian, I would invite you to abstain, or even better, give your sin to Jesus, receive his grace, and come join us at the table the bread being a reminder of Jesus' broken body and the wine or the juice being a reminder of Jesus' blood that was spilled out for us. And as we eat and drink today, let's remember that we have a great king named Jesus. And this team is gonna lead us in some songs and celebration of our great king Jesus. This first song is a song of surrender. It's It's a traditional hymn. It's one that just says the simple words, I surrender all. If God has been working in your heart anywhere where you've not surrendered to King Jesus, then I invite you to sing this song today as a prayer. Let's all stand together, if you would. I'll pray, and we'll begin this time of singing in response. Jesus, we celebrate you, and we worship you as king. We say, Hosanna. Save us, O God. Thank you for all of the grace that you've given to us, and God, thank you that, that Jesus has truly paid it all. He's given us everything, and I pray, God, that you would help us to not hold anything back from you, but that we would go all in on Jesus. Help us now as we sing and worship and celebrate to do so with hearts of great joy and great gladness. We pray this all in Jesus' good name, amen.